We're live. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Great Minds Drink Alike, where you know I bring the coolest people, the best marketers on the planet, entrepreneurs. And uh, we have a conversation at the end of the week and about what, what makes them successful, about what they're, uh, what they're famous for, and of course, to have a drink. Eric O'Neill is the author of the book, Gray Day, and the subject of Universal Studios' feature film, Breach. Eric is an accomplished public speaker, security expert, and author who lectures internationally about espionage and national security, cybersecurity, fraud, corporate diligence and defense, hacking, pursuing one's dreams, and surviving Hollywood. All right, very cool. I've, so I've got one question. Are UFOs real? Area 51, <laughs> come on, I know you know. That's an awesome right, Don't question. be lying to me. Is, are, are there really UFOs? Sometimes I answer this question when people ask, so why did you join the FBI? And it's, I got to say, look, one, I wanted to, there's a longer explanation. And one of the reasons I joined the FBI is because I was painfully young and I wanted to do something that was going to be cool. But I also was an F X-Files fanatic. Yeah. So I can promise you, I scoured FBI headquarters looking for the X-Files. And I couldn't find it. Okay. But I did talk to the lead researcher at SETI at an event. And if you listen to him, UFOs are real. <laughs> yeah, I'm still thinking maybe, I don't know, there's going to be something there. Um, when, when you were talking about Hansen, and it, one of the things that occurred to me, and I think it ties into what's going on today with Facebook and with the data and privacy. You know, now, when you took that device from him, was that a personal device? Yes, that was his personal Palm 3X. So how is that? Tell me about the legality around that. Well, he was being investigated for espionage. So we had a Title III warrant that was issued from the FISA court, which allowed us to pretty much do whatever we wanted, okay. look at whatever we wanted. And one of the other uh, goals that I had from the team was leading the investigation. I was the point guy. I was the undercover operative. So I would get all these tasks, was steal his keys from him. The problem was his keys never left his left front pocket. And man, I don't want to touch his backside. I don't want to put my hand in there. And uh, they wanted to get his keys because it was really hard to get in his home. He actually was very conscious about security. And it's a lot easier to steal and copy someone's keys and use those to get in than to try to pick a lock. Um, but we could do all those things because this was a national security matter. And, uh, and a magistrate had given the FBI permission. Back then, it was a lot harder than today mm -hmm. to get these uh, FISA orders issued. Um, it, you had to go through a lot more uh, hoops. And actually, that made me feel more comfortable. Because when you're invading someone's life, you want to at least feel that some independent person looked at your data and, and decided that this was important. Okay. Today, it's a little easier, which All is right. another problem. All right. So that's why I was just curious. I'm sitting here thinking. Essentially, the government has, and I'm not saying it's, I'm not making a judgment if it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we can make a, a, I think all of us would argue if there's somebody compromising the safety of America, right. then yeah, they should go after it. But then there's the question of personal privacy and how much can the government over, you know, is it overreach or, um, you know, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I, I had this battle on Morning Joe, uh, this exact one. If, if you remember back in the days of the, um, FBI versus Apple debate, and whether the uh, Apple should give FBI a backdoor into their very secure systems, right, their phones. Right, right, right. And they brought me on thinking I was going to be pro-FBI, and of course they should, right? And I said, no, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. And they're like, what? And it was, they were very confused. And I said, look, 
I'm a cybersecurity specialist. And if you build a backdoor into anything, you're creating an exploit that someone that you don't want in there is going to exploit. So security requires us to be secure. So for personal devices, for, for things like that, unless there is that immediate instant need because of a national security crisis or a terrorist, which is also a national security crisis, uh, then the, the government shouldn't have access to our personal data. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah it's, I think it's an ongoing question, and I think uh, that's an, actually an area I think a lot of you could do videos and talk to your customers about, you know, that's this sort of thing, because I think as, you, you know, for our children, we wonder what data is being collected on them. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. And also a warning for everybody with children. They are amazing cyber attackers, is they are spending all their time attacking you. You know, I have time for like a super quick story? Sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I have three children, like I said, 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and an 8-year-old, daughter, son, daughter. And uh, my wife and I caught our daughter watching something on Netflix she shouldn't be watching, right? Uh, at a time when she wasn't supposed to be watching, like way past her bedtime. And uh, so then I went into full investigation mode, right? Interrogated all the children, find out how this had happened. They must have helped each other, right? Turns out that uh, my daughter had shoulder surfed my wife, so got her, her passcode for her phone, then got on her phone when my wife left it uh, in another room and added a thumbprint, because it's faster than entering the passcode. And then what she would do is she would send a uh, screen time request, intercept the phone before any of us saw it, use the thumbprint because it was fast, accept the screen time request and elevate her privileges, right? And then watch whatever she wanted, anytime she wanted. And she'd do this all the time. Uh, guess which kid it was? The eight-year-old. <laughs> and while she was there, right, she, for a present for my other kids, elevated their screen, their Netflix, um, to, you know, TVMA. So, Did yeah. she at least, like, charge a fee or something? I mean, that would make me proud. Well, I'm sure she got like something that, out of if it. If she didn't charge yes. anything, I would have been really pissed. She but got if she made a profit, I'd be like, candy. all right, you know, yes. yeah, yeah. That she got candy for make it. Make me a little bit happier. Yep. Okay. Um, all right, so going back to when you and I first were on the phone a couple months ago preparing right. for this, um, and uh, I think it was actually, was it, it was uh, right around September 11th, it was the 20th mm -hmm. anniversary, and I asked you a question regarding you know, the terrorist attack that are happening. I mean, back 20 years ago, they flew a plane into a building. Today, I think terrorist attacks are going to be different. I think they're going to come on the cyber front, and you agreed, right? So yes. what is your thoughts on what happened in Afghanistan, what's going on in the Middle East, with the resources they have, I mean, and how that might impact America? Well, like, what do you see? Yeah, that's a, that is really a, a well-thought-out and great question because it, it has so many ramifications for the future. Uh, if you remember when ISIS took over a significant area in Syria and they had resources and they had time, they had area, they had land, they had a reinforced position, and they had time, they stopped a lot of the kinetic attacks and they started cyber attacking. So they started using cyber terrorism tactics to attack places in the West. They were a little bit of robber baron, which you learn from the North Koreans. They like to steal funding. Um, and they were leveraging cyber attacks to fund their activities, but also just to do harm, because that's what terrorists want to do, harm, right? And so now, in the situation we're in, uh, 
where ISIS is coming back in, in this room to grow in Afghanistan. Uh, Al-Qaeda is surging. We can see a lot of that. They also, as the Taliban takes over the government, and we know that they work with these two groups, um, they're going to have resources that Afghanistan has and resources that we gave them in order to launch cyber attacks uh, against the West, because that, of course, is who they're after, right? Don't like the West. Uh, the way that we live doesn't really comport well with the way they want to live. Uh, it gives young people in those countries ideas of, of how life should be, and so the more that they can break us down or make us look foolish, the better it is for their way of life. So I think that we are going to see rising cyber attacks and cyber terrorism. Difference between a cyber attack for espionage or crime, crime, they want to leverage money, so that's why you see so much crime and ransomware. Mm -hmm. Terrorists want to destroy. So uh, either uh, destroying or, or, or removing information or changing information, which is even scarier. You think what could happen to our financial sector if there was an attack that was able to uh, not destroy or lock or encrypt with ransomware information, but just change it in a way that when you went to your bank account, you didn't have the amount that you had on Thursday, and now it's Friday, and instead of you know $1,000, you've got three. That's going to cause mass chaos. Mm -hmm. So we could see those sort of attacks happen. Okay. And so what scares you the most? When you look into the future and knowing what you know, what scares you the most? Yeah, right now what scares me the most is a significant critical infrastructure attack. Uh, it's something that I've been worried about for a while. It's something that I've been kind of beating the drum about. Our, our critical infrastructure is not secured. In the last year, because it is a, is a threat that we are thinking about uh, more and more, uh, I've been speaking at a lot of energy companies, um, a, a lot of parts of our critical infrastructure, because they are concerned, and they, and they know that there is a concern. There have been some pretty significant, I keep, keep using that word, but man, this stuff worries me, probe attacks. Probe attacks are where cybersecurity finds countries like Iran, North Korea, Russia, China, have probed parts of our critical infrastructure. So what they do is they find a way in and they install malicious software. They don't trigger it. They're just seeing if they can do it. They're not doing it because tomorrow they want to bring things down. They're doing it because we know that this is our future war. And so what I like to say is we're not going to fight a future war with bullets and missiles. That may be part of it. But the majority of any future war is going to be fought in cyberspace. And so our enemies are preparing. But then so are we. Okay. Do you feel confident in what we're doing on our side? Well, if you look at every military service academy, they've all built these massive, really cool buildings that are for cyber warfare. So, uh, you know, the Air Force really started it, but Naval Academy just built this immense building. I've toured it. It's incredible. Army has gotten be behind cyber warfare because each of the services knows that in any war theater, a big part of a new war theater is going to be cyber. If you can deny communications the way that our, our uh, armed, forces, armed forces operate today, if you can deny communications, drones can't fly, um, soldiers can't communicate, then you have a tactical advantage. Right. And if you can deny that to your enemy, I mean, we're the best, so we have an even better tactical advantage. They can't talk to each other, then they're done for. Right. Okay, interesting. Okay, I'm going to change uh, lanes a little bit and go back. Um, I want to talk about Hansen for a second. Right. Um, why did he do it? Did he ever say what motivated him to do it? Great question, and here's the thing about Hansen. 
It's the one thing he has never answered. So he was, he's a narcissist, and you find that many trusted insiders have some degree of narcissism, this belief that my ego, that my, I am the most important person ever. And when he was arrested, he lost all control. Part of his plea deal is that he had to submit himself to interrogation by four different committees who would ask him questions. And if he was found to be less truthful than, uh, than truthful, if he was found to not be truthful to the committees, then he would be put to death. If he was found to be truthful, he was going to be allowed to serve the rest of his life in prison with no chance of parole. Uh, so he had no power. And the one thing that he kept and he refused to answer was why he did it. Because he said, you have no intelligence reason to know that. You just want to know. Which is true. We really want to know. But psychologically, we want to know because we want to know what motivates people like Hansen so that we can understand people in the future. So no one knows officially, but I think I know because I spent eight hours a day in a room with him for months just talking to him. And he was coming very close to explaining why he did it. Uh, and I was trying to prep him to do that. In fact, the FBI believed that at some point he might be recruiting me. And in his last drop to the Russians, he dropped my name, address, and, and all my information saying, a good person to recruit, thinking I could take on his legacy. That's how well I fooled him. But here's why I think he did it. He began because he was angry and he wanted money. So you have the disgruntled employee who needs cash. That's a, and, and narcissism, that's a pretty bad mix for a trusted insider. I mean, that's, that, that's where you usually see it. He was assigned to a criminal desk in the Midwest. He thought, this isn't what I want to go to the FBI to do. So he put in to be transferred to New York City to work in the New York field office on counterintelligence. Counter he wanted to be a spy hunter. Mm -hmm. But they quickly learned that he's a management disaster. So instead of putting him in charge of a, of a spy operations team, they put him in charge of an analyst team. Analysts are the bread and butter of everything that we do in intelligence, the most important pieces of intelligence. Like on the street, what I did was because I got intelligence from analysts. But he didn't, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be James Bond. He wanted to be in the field. And he felt like they made him a librarian, so he was mad. And he needed money. He was having a lot of kids. He'd moved to New York. He couldn't afford his life. And he thought he should be here when he was here. Instead of working his way up, he sold out. So he volunteered his services to the Russians by sending a letter to the Russian spymaster in the consulate saying, I would like to work for you. I'm not going to tell you who I am or where I work, but I'll send you intelligence, and you give me money, and here's how we're going to do it, and here's my bona fides. These two people are individuals who are working for the United States, or, or your Soviet uh, intelligence officers who are working for us. And those two people were executed. So his first act of spying, he got two people killed. And that, uh, that is a, a, a pretty big makings for a spy. Yeah, I would say. All right, um, I want to turn it over to you guys for questions. If you have questions, go to a mic. There's one over there. There's one here. Does anyone have questions? We'll give them a minute. There's always a We're question. not going to have much time, so hustle like a bunny. <laughs> hustle, hustle. All right, Fred, you first. Hi. Thank you very much. First of all, we enjoyed the presentation. One of the things you mentioned, you were talking about how people don't know what two-factor authentication is. One question that's come up with me recently and I just wanted to resolve, I've gotten some answers on it from the queue, which is uh, the forum through Robin, but do you feel that if someone has a password manager or single sign-on, say LastPass, for example, if it would be prudent for them to use, say, LastPass for MFA, or should they go to, say, an alternate, whether it be a duo or some other 
option? I think the you can. So you're better using a password manager than just trying to come up with passwords on your own. Um, it, it's very difficult. Now, a lot of people feel nervous about password managers because there's a little bit of extra work and knowledge that you have to have, as easy as they make it. You're better using that as your password manager and then going to something separate for multi-factor. Now you've got two extra steps, right? But if you don't want to go that extra step, you're better using one of the password managers and their multi-factor than not using multi-factor at all. You got it? So you can rely on that, and you're going to, with, with, with those steps and good cybersecurity, you're going to block 99.9% .9 of the cyber attacks that are out there. Uh, because what happens is now you're displacing crime from you to somebody who isn't using those steps. And, uh, and those are going to be the ones who got hit. But it, that's a great question. Thank Don't you. Don't be the easy target. Don't be the easy target. Yeah, be the hard target. Right. Thank right. you. Right. Okay. You're very welcome. Over here. So there's situations like you were talking about where we have nation states attacking countries like oh. solar winds and other items. Obviously, you have governments attacking private businesses that are obviously affecting our government. What should our government's responsibility be in helping protect private businesses? I think our government has a responsibility. For example, there is a bill that is being put forward to require every private business to uh, reveal if they are attacked by, or if they are attacked, and if it's ransomware, and what the ransom that they paid was, which I think is pretty invasive. If the government isn't going to also indemnify you for it, right? I think that the government will bail out big corporations when they're hit by ransomware, but if they want to play in the space, they've got to give a little help. Um, now, to throw this in as well, I think you're best served not worrying about the nation state attacks because it's less likely than criminals who are going to come after you modeling their supply chain attacks to come after MSPs, and you're very vulnerable just because of who you are, because you serve a lot of customers that might be their targets. So build your cybersecurity now, as I said, when you're not stressed. Uh, well, we're all a little stressed because of how we live right now in this pandemic, but you're not as stressed as if you're locked with ransomware and you see the, the grinning skulls and it's not because it's Halloween. Uh, the government is going to have to figure this out. And um, I think part of that might be helping companies who, who are hit. But unless you're real important, uh, I wouldn't rely on that. Thank you. You know, I want to, something that's really interesting, you know, you know about the Kaseya attack. And yes. I was talking to, uh, I had interviewed Fred Vicola, CEO, what happened. And, you know, a lot of things he can't say because the FBI did get involved. And he's got a, you know, a lot of you don't realize that. But once you are, you know, the FBI gets involved, what you say, what you reveal has to, you know, you're under, you know. Right. You, know, you can't, you can't say. So. Anyway. It's an active ongoing investigation. So you can't exactly. talk about it. He can't talk about it. So. Um, the, the thing that he mentioned, though, and I thought he was, he was right on, he said, you know, until we get rid of cryptocurrency, we'll forever have ransomware attacks because it's the only way that they can get paid. He said, because, like, if I, if I you know, email you pictures and say, I'm going to get, or this whatever, you know, this information, if you don't pay me money, uh, I'm going to put right. it out online, and you write a check to me, you know, and I cash it at Bank of America, uh, hello, you know, you got me, but... If we don't get rid of cryptocurrency, we're never going to get rid of all of the things that are being sold on the dark web. And cybercrime is not the only thing. Human trafficking, all the... the right. I mean, what are some of the things... That brings me up. And I know we got more questions. <laughs> Talk about, the, just real quick, on the dark web, we tend to think 
cyber criminals, right? They're, right. they're going to hack in. They're going to get my payroll. They're going to, you know. What else is being sold on the dark web? You can hire a hitman if you don't like somebody. There's See, everybody right now, whether, I don't care how Christian you are, someone came to mind. <laughs> right? <laughs> the minute he says that, you're like, okay, anyway. But be careful. <laughs> you might be hiring an FBI agent who isn't going to shoot the person you want shot. They're going to come and get you. Uh, you, you can, there's something called the Body Parts Bazaar, where if you would like a new kidney or eye or you need a new heart, you can buy it there. Uh, you can probably imagine where that stuff comes from. Uh, everything. You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of resourcing on the dark web, which has hu complete business vectors, by the way, uh, of, of kids buying cyber attackers for hire who were locking down their schools. For real, like launching DDoS attacks against schools, you know, denial of service attacks so that the school network was shut down and now no one could Zoom learn. Probably the day, the night before they had a test they didn't study for. Um, kids are smart. I mean, they know. They, they, and all you guys want yeah. to recruit that kid, right? Yeah. I know it. I know it. It's, like, okay. it's kind of like the, the modern example of pulling the fire alarm. So, I, I mean, and, and on and on. I don't want to use all our time talking about the dark web, but yeah, it's not just curious. cyber attackers, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, real quick, virtual question. How do we find insider threats in our organizations? What should we look for? Right. So I talked about this a little bit. Part of the, the main way to find insider threats is to build an architecture that gives you, like I said, context. You have to see what looks right and then what looks wrong. And you can learn that by knowing what your employees are supposed to be working on, what they're supposed to be looking at, and then which of them are trying to access things that they shouldn't. Right? Uh, there was a great case uh, for a uh, defense contractor who caught an employee who was trying to steal satellite, military satellite schematics. Uh, and I write about this in my book, actually, this case, because it's just it's wacky. But he, he plugged a thumb drive in to a system that he wasn't supposed to access. And he badged into the system. And they immediately knew he's not supposed to be there. He shouldn't be using thumb drives. Let's investigate him. They called the FBI. The FBI false, false flagged him, pretended they were the Russians trying to buy it from him. Uh, and, uh, and caught them. It's, it's an even more wacky story. I don't want to spend all the time on it, but you can do all those things, but what you have to do is build a security infrastructure that allows you to see these flaws. Um, and if you can see those flaws, if you understand what's happening within your enterprise, then you can maybe catch a spy. Okay. We're going to make these two more questions. Last two, guys. I'm sorry. It's very hurtful, but... No, yeah, my, okay, mine's Mike. fast. I just want to know, like, was it 7.30, eat breakfast? Like, what was the calendar entry on the Palm Pilot? Like, 9 o'clock, betray United States? Or, like, <laughs> like what? Like, what? <laughs> I just... So he had dates and locations. And we knew that that park at Foxstone Park had been used as a drop site before. He also had uh, dates and times for marking signal sites. And we knew that those signal sites were something a Russian had passed because we had our analytics database. Yeah. So we knew that we were going to use those. And one was coming up. So we were waiting cool. for him. Yeah, cool. cool. All right, Todd, we're going to make this the last one. I'm sorry, guys. I, All right, I'm very so uh, recently I analyzed the IC3 statistics on a uh, per state, per capita basis, and I found that my home state of Alaska over the last few years was either the worst or nearly the worst state in terms of cybersecurity. And so I'm going to make that real clear to our community leaders and our legislature and all that. And I was just wondering, what would be in your opinion, the, the most important message to get in their hands? I, I think that building a cybersecurity infrastructure that allows for the way that a lot of Alaska has to work, right, and, uh, and the way that Alaska, a lot of Alaskans are schooled, 
um, because many areas are very remote. So there's a, Alaska's interesting. They've been a distributed workforce and distributed learning uh, situation for a long time. And then the pandemic exacerbates that. And so that's why you're seeing so many cyber attacks. Uh, that, that's an interesting statistic. I would have thought maybe they were a little better, right? But it, but it, it certainly means that Alaska has a, a long way to go um, to, to improve cybersecurity. Okay, great. Thank you. Very good. All right, guys. We're going to have to wrap up. Great Thank information. You. Thank you so much. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you.